Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. All right. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning. Happy Palm Sunday. We are headed to Matthew chapter 21. We are going to speed up and fast forward to Palm Sunday from our normal verse-by-verse place where we've been hanging out in Matthew chapter 9. So we're going to speed up maybe a year and a half from where we left off for this special day of Palm Sunday. And so I'm excited uh, for what the Lord has for us. Let Let's pray. Now, Father, we are so happy about Palm Sunday. It's so fitting for a world in crisis, for all the stress we're under, uh, the meaning behind waving those palms is just a delight to our hearts. It cheers us up, God, and helps us to fix our gaze upon you, our soon coming King. And so, Father God, minister to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and the wonder of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is it about a parade that we all kind of love? Man, growing up in historic Southboro, Massachusetts, as most of you know, a very old town. In fact, we were number three of uh, the 13 original colonies established in 1727, something like that. And uh, every October 8th, there's something called a Heritage Day, where we remember uh, the past, the Revolutionary War that came right through our little town, and we celebrated that day with a great fun parade. And uh, a a lot of fun. I mean, apple orchards were full at that time, and the, the kids were off of school, and down through the street would come the marching Minutemen who had to be ready in a minute uh, to fight off uh, the bad guys. And lots of fun. They would fire off their muskets and always a lot uh, of things to do and activities, and, and who didn't love that, right? And so, uh, yeah, parades, we love them, and they've been around for a long time. And no matter where they are, St. Patrick's Day uh, Parade in Chicago, or whether it's the Rose Parade down in Pasadena, or uh, the Big Time Butter and Egg Days Parade in that great metropolis of Petaluma. We love parades. People come out, they line the streets. There's plenty to do. And it just is a happy time. It's like the town is uh, just throwing a big party and invites everybody to come out. Like I said, we've been doing parades a long time. Jerusalem, the capital city of the world to come, as the Bible says, was hosting a parade for about uh, 
1,500 years or so, at least a 1,000 years there in Jerusalem uh, for Passover. It was a Passover parade, and uh, it was required of every Jewish male 20 years and older uh, to be there, one of the three holidays that God gave the Jewish people. And so up and over the Mount of Olives, they would come, which was kind of the gateway into the city, and... uh, Uh, It was crowded. Josephus says two million Jews would come to Jerusalem for Passover. And so this year, along with the singing and the dancing, along that parade route down into the city, this year would be different because now Jesus, their Messiah King, was in the mix, in the processional, and that brought even more crowds. In fact, Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, was raised by Jesus and in the crowd uh, with them. And everybody who witnessed Lazarus coming forth from the dead, they were excited and they were in the crowd. And many people were coming to believe in the Lord through Lazarus's testimony. And John chapter 12 says that the Pharisees wanted to kill Lazarus too, along with Jesus, because on account of him, many were coming to the Lord uh, and believing in his name. And so now we're taking a look at uh, the passage here in chapter 21 with a little help from Luke, our friend and doctor who uh, brings a different perspective and a lot of good insights. We're going to take our place at the parade and uh, see what the Lord has for us. So take a look at the screen. It's already there for you as we begin. Uh, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, which is a tiny little city right near, a little town, I should say, a village right near Bethany. It's just at the top of the hill. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them, that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. By the way, Matthew's fond of doing this. He does it 60 times. Tells you how this is a fulfillment of Jesus' um, uh, Old Testament prophecy. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken 500 years earlier through prophet Zechariah. Verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, Zion's another name for Jerusalem in the Hebrew See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We continue with verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees, and other versions has palm trees, and spread them on the road. And then I add here, Luke 19, verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And then back to verse 9, the crowds uh, that went ahead of him 
And those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then finishing up with Luke's uh, little account here from Luke chapter 19, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, correct, rebuke your disciples. They were saying Jesus was the Messiah, right? So verse 40 Well, Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. If these keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, a famous verse, Jesus wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And he goes on, but for our um, account here, verse 10, back to Luke, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and asked, who is this man? And verse 11, the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Yeah, the prophet, but so much more than a prophet. And so this sermon is brought to you by the letter P. That happens sometimes when it all lines up. Verses 1 through 5 that we'll take a look at, the preparation and prophecy. Uh, Verses 6 through 9, the processional or the parade. And then we finish up with the problem people. And there's always at least one in a crowd of that size. It seems that not everyone loves a parade. If Jesus is in it, not everybody loves a parade. And so... Let's dive in and take our place along those narrow roads there in Jerusalem and see what the Holy Spirit has for us. He always has something good, doesn't he? And so um, here's what's going on. I'll paraphrase. We'll go back to verses one through five. Is already on the screen for you. So starting with the preparation, uh, coming to the crest of the hill there, uh, on Mount Olives, uh, Jesus sends a couple of his disciples ahead to get that famous donkey and bring it to him. He says, if anyone gives you a hard time, just, and they do, Luke tells us that they actually do uh, give him a hard time. And he says, this is what you tell him, the Lord wants it, and boom. And then he says, by the way, as Matthew, as I said, is fond of doing, uh, the ride into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfills that 500-year-old prophecy. So Zechariah is saying, don't miss it, Jerusalem, because your king will come to you, maybe not as you're expecting, uh, but gentle and meek and on a mission of peace to reconcile the world back to God. In a, as the Prince of Peace, on gentle and humble and riding on a donkey. We don't want you to miss out. So as we dive in here to the preparation, the overarching idea here, and don't miss this, is that Jesus' death is no, no random crisis or accident here. And so as you look at the verses, uh, you'll notice that Jesus is in charge, right? The crisis to come is not orchestrated uh, by the Pharisees who hate him, who are envious of him. It's not because Judas is going to secretly betray him, and it's not the Romans who are the bad guys calling the shots. In fact, Jesus is going to tell the Romans, talking to Pilate, you have no power 
here. You wouldn't have any power if it wasn't given you by heaven. And so we see that this is all God's idea. It's God the Father's idea. As Isaiah chapter 53 says, the Lord, it pleased the Lord God the Father to crush God the Son, to put him to grief, to make his soul a guilt offering, Isaiah 53 and verse 10. I was talking to a man one time and he heard about the gospel and he said, what kind of father would do that to his own son? And I said, the kind of father who would rather punish Jesus than see you suffer uh, the punishment you deserve. So he put your wretched sins on his own sinless son out of love for you. That's the kind of father who would do that to his own son. And so, yeah, as I've often told you, Jesus wasn't killed for his good work. It was his good work to be killed. I mean, they come from the East bearing gifts that are for embalming. Right from the start, we knew that he came to die. He says, no one takes my life from me. I'm coming here to lay it down, a ransom to pay for the sins of many. So your verse tells you there that Jesus and his disciples make the ascent up Mount Olives to get into Jerusalem. They climb 3,500 feet, 15 miles from Jericho, singing Psalms 118 to about 134 are the Psalms of ascent that are meant to be sung as you uh, climb up that hill, uh, making your way to Jerusalem. And so we see as they get to the top, Jesus is now making arrangements for his transportation to come down that hill uh, into Jerusalem itself. He's making preparations, but it sounds like the preparation plans have been already talked about 500 years earlier. And even before that, as the Lamb of God in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 7 says, was slain before the foundation of the world. So apparently what's going down in the last week of Jesus' life has been on the mind of God for a long, long time. How long ago was it before the foundation of the world existed? And so, yeah, this is not just something unfolding. Oh, no, this good prophet arises and, you know, everything goes wrong and he ends up on a cross. This has been planned before the foundation of the world. And that's the sense of this paragraph. Jesus is in charge. He's displaying his foreknowledge. He knows that there's a donkey. He knows where the donkey is. He knows uh, that the owners are going to squawk about it. He knows that they have to be told and how to get that donkey released. And uh, he, he also knows that most Bible-believing Jews or Bible-literate Jews of the day would see the action of riding in on a donkey as him saying, I am the prophesied one to come. I am the king of Israel. I am your Messiah. He wasn't shy at admitting it, especially toward the end times. I mean, remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? Uh, she tried to change the, the uh, subject when Jesus was hitting too close to home about her own sins. And she said, you know, Jesus, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus looked square in her face and into her eyes and said, I who speak to you am he. 
Well, that changed her life because she went back in one half of her village to the Lord. And so God, our Savior, wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so, yeah, 300 prophecies like this one that you're looking at this morning. And so uh, Jesus himself told, I've got a slide. I mean, there's no surprises here. That's the point of this paragraph. I got a slide from Matthew 20 that shows you that Jesus has just told them a chapter ago. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man, a description from Daniel chapter 7 of the Messiah. Uh, the Son of God, same thing, will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and, he, and will hand him over to the non-Jewish people, the Romans, to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. But on the third day, he will rise to life. Now, it seems like he pretty much knows what's going on. There's nothing random. There's nothing left to chance. God is in charge. God is in control. He's come to do the deed, and he's doing it. And Palm Sunday is just one step in the plan that has been set in place before the foundation of the world. And so it's all meant to broadcast God's power and God's determination and God's love that he wills that nobody perish. He doesn't want anybody to miss out. So he comes the first time, lays down his life, so that when he comes the second time to judge the world, everybody can have a refuge in him. And so this is the idea here in your uh, paragraph. Go get me the donkey, which I've arranged, so I can ride down into the city and lay down my life for the sins of the world. And so, yeah, he's going to be crowned king, right? But he's going to be crowned with thorns. And you'll remember the curse in the garden because of our sin. God said it's not going to grow pretty things anymore, but thorns, the ground is cursed. So Jesus becomes a curse, the sinless one. On our behalf, he becomes a curse for us. And that is so poignantly portrayed as the thorns on his brow. The first time he comes, he comes gentle, submitted to the Father's will to be a sin-bearing Savior, to offer salvation to those who have sinned against him. And so now check out how this God chooses to enter coronation week here on the screens here. Behold, uh, the daughter of Zion comes, your king. And check this out, gentle, meek, lowly, and humble on a donkey, if you can believe that. So he doesn't come with Roman dignitaries or trumpets. A golden chariot pulled by the emperor's wonderful stallions, does he? No. He's flanked by a bunch of ragged disciples here. Oh, we need to go back to the verse. Thanks, though. Awesome, Spencer. Uh, so he's flanked by dignitaries uh, and ragged, not dignitaries, ragged disciples, unschooled hillbilly boys, Blue-collar guys, they live paycheck to paycheck or fish to fish, right? 
and uh, they're just a team of nobodies. And uh, I guess they, they wouldn't have expected King Messiah to come with these kinds of people on a donkey with the character quality of meekness and gentleness. The word in Hebrew that Zechariah adds that is left out here is ani. It means lowly, low to the ground, not intimidating, not puffed up with himself. It's what Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and meek, lowly, humble in heart. I'm not intimidated. I didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. My brother uh, Darian coined a phrase, oh, many, many years ago. He was describing some guy who's really friendly and approachable, and he said, you know, he's kind of ears down. And he meant, you know, when a dog approaches you and his ears are down, you know, you know he's happy and you could touch him and pet him. But ears up, man, you stay back. And so, uh, you know, to, to take my brother's little idiom, say that Jesus is saying, I'm ears down the first time. The second time he comes ears up. And so he's not intimidating. He's gentle and lowly because he's the savior who wants people to come. Who's going to come if he's raising the bar so high that you could never reach that measure? But he says, simply put your trust in me. And so um, we often need to be reminded that he's not out to get us. He's not somebody who's intimidating One writer said, it's hard to accurately perceive anyone's true intentions when possessing a guilty conscience. And so we often just see God through the lens of our own guilt and think that that's how he sees us when in fact he's paid for all of those things and sees us quite a different way. Those who have turned from those sins and put their faith in Christ. And so, yeah, so two comings. And now it is time for that slide, Mr. Spencer. So put that back up there. And I'll show you in Zechariah, you have to catch this because Zechariah chapter nine is coming number one, peaceful with the olive branch and come to me, whoever you are. But in chapter 14, what is up with this Messiah? He says, on that day, the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, will be split into two. And that chapter describes the second coming with all this power and glory and vengeance and judgment. Two comings. And so many Jews and so many people just are looking for that second one without the first. But you're going to be in a lot of trouble if you don't make the first one that reconciles us to him through his death and the peace he came to bring, that peace of reconciling sinful man to a holy God. If you missed that one, then the second coming, uh, that's bad news indeed. And so, yes, uh, now that you've got that, uh, you know, there's a popular, we can go back to the verses one through six, There's a popular anti-war bumper sticker. I've mentioned it before. Who would Jesus bomb? Well, see, the problem there is is that they're just considering Zechariah 9 and not Zechariah 14. 
They see gentle, meek, lowly Jesus. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Love your enemies, guy. The first coming, not the second. So the answer to the question, who would Jesus bomb, is first of all, he was bombed himself so that nobody would have to be bombed, by God, that is. And the answer to that question is that he, sadly, will bomb, Revelation chapter 6 all the way through 19, anyone who spurned the good graces of God the Son, who bled and died to provide a refuge for the coming judgment. That's who gets bombed. Only those who excuse themselves from the grace and the kindness and the refuge of the Most High God. Those are the ones in trouble. And so I have a verse, I believe, from 2 Corinthians 5 that says, because of all of this, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So the screen can go blank then, and I'll just explain it to you. 2 Corinthians 5. uh, It says, listen, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation uh, that Christ Uh, God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself and that we are begging people, be reconciled to God. He who, who, the sinless one, he made to be sin on our behalf that we might become right with God. And so knowing all of these things, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's really the whole point of uh, this Uh, paragraph to move us into action. So we've got preparation and prophecy. It's time for a parade. Let's go to the parade here. The verses now are coming onto the screen, and I'll paraphrase as my usual custom. So the disciples do as they're told, right? They bring the donkey. They provide makeshift um, saddle with some of their clothing, huge crowds, Gather, they're spreading their outer garments out on the road in front of Jesus, and others are doing the same with palm branches. They're waving them and also putting them on the ground. Uh, verse Luke uh, chapter 19 now, there's loud praising of God, singing many uh, uh, praises to him, especially those who have seen all of the miracles. So they're convinced. And verse 9, they're shouting praises from the psalm, Psalm 8, 118, associated with the Messiah. This will make the religious leaders crazy, indignant. They will blow a head gasket and they will tell Jesus to silence those disciples. Okay, so it's time for the parade. Here they come down Palm Sunday Drive. It's a really, uh, it's a very famous attraction there. If you go to Jerusalem, you will, you could go down that very area where the crowds would have spilled over. And they come down to the Eastern Gate. I've got a picture of that for you. And uh, this is the gate that Jesus would have entered to go into, uh, one of 12 gates. This gate is the closest to the temple, most popular. And so uh, this is fascinating because there's a prophecy in the Old Testament, in Zechariah, that says that that gate, the eastern gate, would be uh, shut up 
after Jesus goes in the first time and not reopened until the Messiah comes through it. And the Muslims, who you see the Dome of the Rock there, that dome was built uh, in the 8th century uh, by the Muslims. And when they did that, they laid the cemetery in front of that gate because they believed in that uh, prophecy. And so to stop the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, from going through those eastern, that eastern gate, uh, they decided to put the tombstones there so that a good Jewish man would not touch those um, areas where there's coffins and things like that. And so it's going to take a lot more than that to stop Jesus from busting through. Those very gates are going to be busted open, and Jesus is going to go through them. Uh, on the real deal. And so we can go back to the verses uh, six through nine there. And so the crowds are pumped. It's Sunday. It's the Sunday before Good Friday. They're pumped, but they're fickle in their emotions, aren't they? Because all of that um, cheering is going to turn to booing and the smiling is going to turn to scowling and the hosannas is going to turn to crucify. And so one writer said this about emotions, and I loved it. He said, this, dear readers, is why we must base our lives, our theology, choices, our service, our worship on the word of God more than mere emotions. Our feelings are fickle and our emotions are passing. Emotions are wonderful to have when they're right, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. Who doesn't love the warm fuzzies? I can't get enough of those. But when they're wrong, they're deadly and deceptive, right? Do you remember back in the 70s, uh, Debbie Boone's song, You Light Up My Life? <laughs> some of you do. Um, but some of your grandparents weren't even born. Um, back in the 70s, the song said, it can't be wrong when it feels so right. There's a lot of very bad things that are out there that feel right, that are really wrong. And so, you, you know, we have to uh, trust in the word of God or we'll be singing his praises one day and then we've got trials and just like them, they gave way to fear and shouted crucify. And so it was a common practice back then uh, to create a, like a ceremonial carpet in front of dignitaries. You know, remember like in movies, the chivalry that a guy would take his jacket and put it over a puddle uh, so that his, uh, the woman wouldn't have to step uh, in a mess. And so that's kind of what they were doing. Oh, it just signified loyalty and love and submission. We would rather throw our own coats and jackets, outer robes, uh, onto the ground rather than the bottom of your donkey's hooves to touch the dirty uh, ground. And so... <clears throat> That's what was going on with the palm branches on the ground. But the palm branches that were being weighed was saying so much more. And a lot of modern Westerners miss this whole beautiful thing. Palm branches meant something to the Jewish people. They were dear to their hearts. And here's why. In Leviticus 13... God lays out the seven holidays, holy days for his Jewish people. 
And one of their happiest ones was called the Feast of Sukkot, or tabernacles, or tents. I mean, the word really just means like a hut, or a shelter place, or uh, like a little fort in the backyard. That's the idea. And so what it was about is this week-long celebration. Lots of good food because it happened at harvest time. Think of Thanksgiving. They take a week off. They go back and live outside in their little ramshackle lean-to shelter place. And they'd go in there and they'd sing songs and remember and they'd read the story of the Exodus and how God was dwelling with them. His dwelling place, that was the thing. God is with us, he's taking care of us and he's protecting us. And so God told them, make those shelters out of palm branches. So when a Jew had a palm branch in hand, He's saying, God is with us, the joyous celebration of the God who is with us, and because he's present, dwelling with us, we have no cause for any fear whatsoever. And so that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're proclaiming, now the, the, the God's Messiah is going to be dwelling with us as they're waving those palm fronds, as they're called, back and forth. God is with us forever. Uh, no more worries. We have a Savior, and he's coming to reign on the throne because he's dwelling with us. That's what the palms were saying. Now, don't forget that in Revelation... While all hell is breaking loose on the earth, when the church has already been removed from harm's way and the earth dwellers are slugging it out with the Antichrist and losing, we get a picture of those in heaven waving palm branches, saying God is intent on making us dwelling on the earth called the millennial kingdom where he will come in Revelation 21 and say, now is the dwelling of God with his people. And he says, they will be my people and I will be their God. So the waving of the palms in heaven is saying, this uh, Armageddon scene down on the earth is going to be overcome by the presence and the dwelling of God who seeks to make the earth his dwelling with those he has redeemed. And so on this day, on Palm Sunday, that day, I should say, they were just welcoming the God who has come to dwell with them in their midst. And so you'll see in your text that they're shouting lines from uh, the Psalm, Psalm 118, verse 26, Psalm 148, and verse 1. Hosanna, I tell you this every year, <laughs> means Lord save. And it's kind of like a hallelujah, praise God. It means quite literally, uh, Lord save us. And then the son of David is acknowledging the truth of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, that says, uh, that God promised David, he said, David, your own biological offspring, descendant, great-great-grandson from your body related to you will sit on a throne and rule forever. So there it is, the God-man, because who can rule forever but God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, but related to David through Mary. 
Mary is in the line of King David. So he is the God-man come to save and sit on that throne. And when they're shouting, son of David, they're saying, you're the one who God prophesied will be related to King David and rule on a throne forever and ever, not just for Israel, but for any who have believed in his name, received him, and now been made born of God. That is for all of us to enjoy. So the crowds are cheering from behind, your text says, and there are crowds cheering from uh, in front, and too bad they can't hear the crowds above because those crowds are cheering too. And maybe the groans below, maybe that's good that we don't hear those because all the dead who die in their sins have descended to a place called really Hades. Hell isn't open for business yet, uh, but they await their time of judgment after uh, the millennial kingdom at what is called the great white throne. But every eye is going to see when he comes, including uh, theirs. And so a lot of happy hearts on this occasion there in Jerusalem, but not everybody in the crowd is jumping for joy. Let's finish up here with now the problem. I will paraphrase as you take a look at those verses there. And so, so the sourpuss, jealous, religious hypocrites, as Jesus called them, actors, uh, the fakers in the crowd, uh, hear what the crowds are saying. They're, they're, they're screaming out, he's the one. That's what Messiah means, by the way, the one. He's the one. God's one way to be saved. So the sourpuss, <laughs> jealous Pharisees uh, are saying, rebuke your disciples. Don't you hear what they're saying? Uh, tell them to close their mouths. Jesus says, hey, if they stop singing, the stones all around you will just pick up where they left off, busting out praises to me and to God. Uh, is that what you really want kind of thing? And so, so two things here as we uh, bring our remarks to a close. Uh, one is the small hearts of the Pharisees, and the second thing you see is the broken heart of the Savior. So what ugly souls are these? Small-hearted men indeed. Uh, one writer said, be careful, O believer, you who think you're better than everybody else and keep all the rules. Your tongue is quick to criticize others. Lest you find yourself having more in common with the enemies in the story than the Savior. And so let us lay all Phariseeism aside and ban it from our hearts. So they're doing what they do best all through the gospel story. They're resisting God, grieving the Holy Spirit, exalting themselves, and then they top it all by giving orders to the Lord. That's dumb. We do not tell the Lord what to do. And so they say, hey, how about you know, silencing those guys? And they got their noses out of joint. They're offended. Your peeps are claiming that you're the one. You're, you're the Messiah. Tell them to stop. And Jesus says, not going to happen. He said, if I do that, the trees are going to start applauding and clapping their hands. The rocks will sing. The bunnies will jump up and down for joy and be dancing around. The kid-drawn brook will bubble up their praise. And so you're fighting a losing battle, guys, and this 
leads right in to his broken heart. He sees them headed for destruction. And here's the point. It didn't have to be that way. Oh, that's what breaks his heart. Let's take a look at that here closer now, 41 through 11, it's still uh, on your screen. And as they approach, maybe they pull out a little bit. Maybe there's a pull out, you know, a little rest area. Jesus kind of takes in the view. And he says, too bad, you, even you. That's very curious. He says, you, like everybody always thinks when you're reading the Bible, he's talking about somebody else. But he throws that in there to say, even you, the one, yeah, you. Right now, in your living room or wherever you're watching this, uh, or seated here, the, the, all three of you, uh, yeah, even you. He makes it personal. Uh, too bad you couldn't figure out how important this moment was and then all the peace that could have been yours. And now it's going to be hidden from your eyes. Verse 10, he gets into Jerusalem. Everybody wants to know, who is this guy? And they answer, so now, uh, yeah, the problem is a sad one, and it breaks the heart of the one who came to heal our hearts. It wounds the, the healer of our souls. And so uh, wherever they pull off the road for a little moment of meditation, Jesus takes it all in. What's he thinking about? He has a perfect mind, a perfect memory. He's thinking of a thousand-year history of Jerusalem started with King David a thousand years earlier when he captured it from the Jebusites and named it Jerusalem. A thousand years of all the prophets from 1 Samuel to 2 Chronicles. All of that he's thinking. He's also thinking of the nation uh, uh, and the disaster to come and maybe 40 years from then because of their refusal to receive him, the Romans will come in and AD 70 and level the place. He told his disciples, see these rocks? See this gorgeous temple? Not one rock will be upon another. They're all coming down. So, of course, this is what he's thinking about as he looks at the temple. And certainly, he's thinking about <laughs> a 2,000 years of a homeless nation, not until 1948, two millennia later that the Jews finally have a home. He's sad about that. And of course, the Holocaust is going to cross his mind. And so he weeps, but the word there is to sob. And now I just imagine the disciples like freaked out. I mean, when your leader breaks down, when God cries, that can't be good. And so uh, Jesus lets us know why he's crying for the missed opportunity. He says it out loud right there. I had a high school friend, and under his picture in the yearbook, it said, the saddest words of tongue or pen are these, I might have been, or it might have been. And this captures the essence of what is breaking the Savior's heart. It didn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way for anybody who perishes, everybody who ends up in hell. The sting of it all is it didn't have to happen. You didn't recognize the time the gospel came to you. 
that Christ came to you, the Holy Spirit was speaking through a Christian, an ordinary Christian. It was your time of visitation when the whole world stopped in a dead in its tracks and somebody came through your line and said, hey, wow, what a crazy time. The Bible talks about these things. It would be good for you to turn your heart to the Lord and find peace in him. And if they don't, they end up in a world of hurt. But it didn't have to happen because they didn't recognize the time God was visiting them at their place of work through a Christian, through Christ's spirit within that Christian speaking to them. They didn't see it. They missed the time of visitation and therefore missed the opportunity and went blind and went on their way without the Savior and Jesus Christ. It says in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11, God takes an oath and says, as surely as I live, says the Lord, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, rather that they turn from their sins and live and be saved. And then it says, turn, turn, turn. The cry of his heart. And so he's looking out. He knows that they're not turning. For the most part, there's always a remnant. Uh, thank goodness. And so he says, if you only knew the peace, the joy, the goodness, the escape from God's wrath to come, the uh, escape from the hell to follow that, and the paradise of God, if you only New And so, I mean, to reject the Prince of Peace who's coming with an olive branch is to leave you one option, is to deal with God not as your friend and ally and advocate, but as uh, uh, someone who's against you. And he doesn't want that. I mean, he's crying about it. And so, yeah, um, in this regard, much like Jesus <laughs> Uh, we see what they can't see. Um, we know what they can't know, or should I say they won't know it. They, they refuse to know and come to the knowledge of the truth, which brings us tears because we look out on a world that's going its way off the cliff and we're saying, hey, 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 don't, don't do that. And so we weep too, you know? We know that they are missing out and that causes us to do our work, to share the gospel, to be salt and light with compassion in our hearts. Uh, and the good news is yet, you know, uh, he came to his own. His own didn't receive him. They will. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, all Israel is going to come. But the good news is to those who did receive, who believed in his name, to them, he gave the right to become children of God, not born the natural way, but born of the Spirit. And so as we wind down to our conclusion, sons and daughters of the Most High God, this day on Palm Sunday are calling out to him. We're looking all through the earth. Do you know how many? Maybe a billion Christians. God's got our attention too. And we look to the sky on this Palm Sunday and we wave branches in our hearts that say, God, come and take us to the place you've prepared for us. 
that we could dwell with you. That's the waving of the branches. And that you would dwell with us, that you would be our God and wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is the point of Palm Sunday. And here it is, the fulfillment was the day of Pentecost when he came not just to dwell on earth in a general way, not just to dwell in the midst of the congregation, but the dwelling place, the tent that he's intended to dwell forever, the fulfillment of the Feast of Sukkot is our hearts. Our hearts. Our hearts are the backyard shelter, the tent that the Most High God intends to dwell in forever. And so he's put his spirit in our hearts, not with, uh, not made of the palm branches, but made of human flesh and our soul. He's with us and we embrace the truth of Palm Sunday. Our King comes, we cry out, Hosanna, for he is near and he said, look up for your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the beautiful truth of Palm Sunday, how fitting and well-timed it is to bring peace to our hearts for those who have come to you through Christ our Lord who came to reconcile us back to the Father in perfect love and perfect peace. Father God, comfort us in these days of stress and strain to keep our eyes fixed on you, our hearts riveted to the great and precious promises of God and that we would shine forth your light, your truth, that others might see and know and come to praise the God we love. We commit ourselves to your care, Heavenly Father, and we look forward to your soon return. Let us be found blameless and at peace with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 